This is the 12 Songs of Christmas, today with J.D. McPherson. Alex Rawls and the 12 Songs of Christmas is my pry bar into the way Christmas music and our culture interact. Today I'm talking with J.D. McPherson, who last year released the excellent Christmas album, Socks. I recently wrote about McPherson at myspeltmilk.com, and I'll link to that story in the show notes. He grew up in rural Oklahoma and didn't really start his musical career as a touring act until he was in his 30s. He says he doesn't quite fit in with the country or Americana folks, but it seems like the obvious love he shows for the roots of rock and roll would find a home with American people. Still, Socks locks into an old R&B groove, so much so that you can imagine some confusion for those who imagine that all worthy music comes from Nashville. As McPherson explains by phone, Socks isn't his first Christmas project. He recorded Twinkle, Little Christmas Lights, in 2012, and then felt like he'd said what he had to say until 2018 when he figured out how to write an album of new Christmas songs. He talks about that and its relationship to Christmas music in our conversation. We'll get to that in a moment, but after J.D. and I talk, I want to spend a few minutes with one of my favorite Christmas songs, Charlie Rich's Santa Claus's Daughter, a song that would likely make sense to McPherson. As much as I love talking to musicians about Christmas music, I also like sharing songs with people. And I've discovered when talking to Christmas music fans and Charlie Rich fans alike, the song seems to have slipped through the world unnoticed. We'll try to change that later. But first, here's my conversation with J.D. McPherson on the 12 Songs of Christmas. So how long did it take you to learn to write in classic forms? Um, well, I mean, I don't think I really started writing. I really don't think that I, I almost feel like it all kind of worked out for me when it was supposed to. Like I didn't really get out on the road till I was in my thirties. And so I really don't think that my, anything I wrote up to that point was good enough to be heard or for anyone to respond to it. I, I don't, I just believe that. But I mean, I always kind of was able to see things in boxes like um for instance when i wrote the christmas record i really that whole idea was was kind of sparked by a nick lowe record that he made um and i was like okay well you can do something a little left of center here you can do something um you know you can you can make a semi-intelligent Christmas record, you know, or something that's a little, maybe a little challenging and fulfilling at the same time. So that was inspiring that it was, if Niccolo does it, it's okay for me to, ah, ah, but, ah. but the other thing was like, you know, my favorite Christmas music was drifters. Um, um, and you know, the stuff that Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller wrote for Elvis, they wrote, they wrote a lot of Christmas material that they never did write that I know of write any Christmas material for their number one 
vessel, which was the coasters. I mean, the coasters and Lieber and Stoller go together. That's the most perfect artist-writer relationship that I can point to. I mean, that band, there's something about the coasters or Robbins previously that the voices and everything clicked to where they could sell that kind of sly, humorous, really tight, really great songs, all of that, but they never did Christmas material. So I said, well, if I'm going to write this record, I would, I want to imagine if we were Stoller did an album's worth of material for the coasters. And it was in some ways the easiest thing I've ever done. Being able to kind of see that, those parameters, it was, it was just, instead of pulling things out of thin air, I really understood. I really have studied you know, what the things that led to that relationship and that what could be. And it was just easy for me to think of it that way. I, I can't explain it any other way. It's just, I kind of can see things in, in boxes or I can imagine what something might have been, I guess. Sure. If that makes any sense. No, I, I get all of that. That's great. Were there other Christmas songs that that you had, or you know, that you had a passion for growing up, or that, that at least stayed with you growing up? Um, I really loved all the animated series when I was a kid. Um, the the kind of classic ones, um, Burl Lives as a Snowman had a big influence on me. <laughs> I just there was something about like those. Um, animated like claymation specials when I was a kid they were they were weird the um the the Rudolph one is really dark I don't know if anybody's watched that in a while but that Rudolph special is really dark and the sound design on that is really strange there's some really strange sound edits um on that that kind of clicked with me in the way that um I was actually going to say earlier like watching David Lynch movies in high school by myself in my room. That that view of like the fifties was kind of the one that stuck with me. Like when David Lynch presented the fifties to me, that seemed like, I guess that kind of altered my perception of what the 1950s were. Right. It was this kind of Edward Hopper, Hitchcockian, um, Francis through a Francis Bacon lens, like kind of dark, um, undercurrent beneath the kind of perfect sugary exterior that really appealed to me. So I, I kind of latched onto those things a lot. And I just remember all those, the visuals of all those kind of sixties and fifties animated specials having a big effect on me. Um, but, um, the bells of St. Mary's, uh, done by Clyde McFadder and the Drifters is my favorite Christmas song, uh, even though it's not really a Christmas song. Um, it's played at Christmas, but um, <laughs> that scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci shoots uh, Samuel Jackson in the back of the head, that song is playing. Ah, ah, and ah, ah. It, it somehow that, I don't know what it is. It's like this, um, it's this kind of juxtaposition of this, beautiful, sentimental 
song with this dark um, undercurrent that that may have had an effect on the Sox record a little bit. Sonic language isn't there for me. It, I, I need to have those kind of highs rolled off and have a really great song. And I just it sounds right. Sure. So um, that's the only reason why I was ever probably um, willing to do a, a Christmas record because it had to. It had to have that sonic language. It had to sound sound right. And um, boy, I'm really meandering a lot here it's okay <laughs> it's kind of hard to put my finger so, on but all of these things i think are kind of what led to that record right i have to say i'm going to pick up a piece in there when you were talking about rudolph i saw rudolph again uh my daughter is six so we watched rudolph last christmas and she liked it watched it watched it a number of times but i always think pulling the poor abominable snowman's teeth that by itself is like without anesthetic like oh man that's pretty cringy and just how lonely the Island of Misfit Toys is. And when the when they finally come back for it, it's like watching this poor toy, you know, in tears, thinking it's been abandoned. It's like that's sort of beautifully dark. It's like as dark as uh, as dark as a Charlie Brown Christmas, which is, you know, so angsty that still Rudolph has got a lot of darkness in it. Well, you know, another thing about Rudolph is that Santa is a real jerk in that movie. <laughs> he's like almost, he's almost like the antagonist. He, he's like, he's a really horrible person in that movie. <laughs> and um, the Charlie Brown Christmas, I mean, that is super like, I, I don't remember what the line is, but you know, I'm not going to let this, I don't know, it's something to the effect of like, I'm not going to let this corporate <laughs> Whatever, spoil my Christmas. That's right. That kind of stuff is really gold, you know. It's um, that's good stuff, man. That's really good stuff. Now, you your first. Do I, am I right that Twinkle is your first Christmas song? Yeah, that was uh, that was like a long. We recorded that a long time ago, 
And that was when I was kind of really just starting and Rounder said, you know, basically at this point I've been granted the the ability to eke out a living as a musician and I would pretty much do anything anybody asked me to do and I eventually I learned um to say no a little bit more but I did that Christmas song I wrote it and I was like I'll never do another one again and then why not it goes to show you yeah why didn't you say uh, what what about that one made you not want to do another one I don't know. It's just, I love Christmas and I love Christmas music, but it just was like, it was like being asked to do something that I knew was just for, they wanted to get, you know, they wanted to get a Starbucks commercial, which they did. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I knew, I knew that it was a thing, but, um, you know, I, I also know that that, that song made a lot of people happy and, um, so it was kind of like, you know, dealing with those those ideas. that one really fast. I hate to say this, but it's like the Christmas material has been the easiest stuff for me to do. And I don't, I wring my hands and pace the floor over every other song. But for some reason, that stuff was such a joy to write and fun and a nice exercise. And, um, my deadlines were always on point. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it was the only time that that's ever happened. So I don't know. Um, Maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Who knows? Well, is it because you had a pretty clear vision of what the song was supposed to be fairly quickly? Yeah, and also I, I knew that I could, I could do it in a way that other people weren't. Um, I, I was, you know, I was, um, I wasn't going to make um, an overly schmaltzy Christmas record because. It's just like, that's what people do. And, you know, people will, it's like the same thing when people now are making a Neo soul record, they use the same four or five tropes. Christmas records are the same thing. It's like people will put it out because they want a financial stopgap. So they throw every cliche they can at the material. And the first thing they record is the backing jingle bell track. So it was, well, how do we not, how do we not do that? And I took a lot of cues from Nick Lowe that Nick Lowe's record is there are no jingle bells on that record. You know, it's um it deals with some it deals with some pretty banal stuff like being at the airport. Um That's a beautiful song. Or, you know, yeah, or, you know, a homeless person, you know, asking for a for a buck. I mean it is just that was uh it was like, Oh, this is how you just have to kind of betray all of those um, things that you're supposed to do on every Christmas record. 
Outside the taxi window On the way to catch my flight I noticed snowflakes playing In the ever-failing light When he dropped me at departures It was really coming down Deep and crisp and even It settled on the ground It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport All the planes are grounding And the fog is rolling in It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport this year Doors are locked and bolted Let the festivities begin First thing was it had to be a rock and roll record. It had to be able to pop up in somebody's playlist in the middle of August, and they might not immediately know what they were listening to. It was a seasonally sensitive recording. Um, and then it had to have a sense of humor, and it had to have a little bit of snarkiness to it, maybe a little, little dark edge, because that's in there in real life. You know, when you're a kid, uh, Christmas is up. You'll, you'll always have joyful memories, but you'll also, you know, everybody remembers being that selfish, ah, selfish ah, brat ah, that, ah. that's upset to open a pair of a pair of underwear on Christmas. So, all of those things were like, you know, just try to just try to avoid um, any of those kind of just first instincts. Christmas morning, sneaky as can be. I creep across the carpet and I peek under the tree. Pick out a gift from mom to me and bring it to my ear. Give it a little shimmy shake and what do I hear? Socks. When you, you you obviously weren't sure you wanted to do Twinkle when you were asked to do Twinkle, was it because you thought Christmas music was sort of too uncool to do at that time? No, at the time, I mean, it was when they did it because I asked. I was, it was more like a challenge. Um, but it was like, okay, I did that. Now I don't need to do it again. Right. That that was more of the that was more of the idea. What was your experience with Christmas music growing up? It was wonderful. I I love um, I love Christmas music. Like I said, I mean, all I was always like a real avid consumer of, of media, and so movies and books and music all just really soaked in. Um, 
And so I, I really kind of remember those Christmas specials as being like really like important. Um, and, uh, I didn't live near a mall, so I didn't hear Christmas music in October. You know what I mean? I, I, it was just like, it was a very special thing. It didn't last very long for me. You know, it was just like whatever was on TV was what I had access to. Now, I remember your, that your uh, mother was a pastor and that yeah. you played in her church. Were you, were you at that point playing and singing Christmas music during the season? No, never sang. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, no, no. I played the drums and played guitar. Um, or, and I played bass, too. Uh, but never sang. Um, and we didn't really do that. We didn't really do... We didn't really do... Um, Christmas music that I remember. Oh, okay. Now, one of the things you that uh, on socks is I don't remember there being any sort of overtly or covertly Christian songs. Uh, was that a choice? Um. Yeah, they seem different to me. Um, oh, holy night, um, silent night. Those seem like different. It's a different box than um, Rudolph, Gene Autry. You know, it, it, it's a different thing. It's almost like, you know, I won't listen to Elvis's gospel music next to um, his regular rock and roll music. It's just a different thing. I, I, I That's a strange thing. You just kind of made me have an aha moment. I really, it really kind of occurs to me how much I come compartmentalize things. They just seem like a different, um, a different, different box. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a historically, you know, sort of consistent box. The, uh, I don't know if a, a great story, if you, if you haven't heard it was that, uh, Huey Piano Smith made an amazing Christmas record, uh, it was the night before. I want to say it was the night before Christmas, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But Christmas album that you would absolutely love. And when he made it, he made it with the idea that Christmas music is played every year, and so this was a, something that was going to have a chance to be played yearly. It was going to make him some money. And basically, this would be maybe 1957, and that the reaction was so hostile in the marketplace that like on a, on a American bandstand type type TV show, they broke the record on, on screen on TV because they felt like rock and roll and Christmas exist in two separate lanes and that there was something fundamentally blasphemous about putting this record out then. And uh, Ace Records pulled it. And so it went on, it uh, wasn't in the world until it was reissued, I think, in like 92 on CD. Um, but it's a magnificent wow. Christmas record. Can you tell me that name of that again? It is. Um, it's Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns, and the album is called uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas.
The stockings were hung by the chimney with care. Hope that Saint Nick will soon be there. Coming down the chimney, making lots of noise. Boogie woogie Santa Claus. A jolly old fella with a lot of toys. What song did you feel like was the greatest achievement or the hardest thing to nail down on uh, socks? Holly Carol Candy and Joy, just because um, once I had one verse down and I realized that each character needed its own verse and chorus, and that was like almost, it was like, how am I going to make, because originally it was just going to be the four girls' names and then just be about kind of a, a, a body uh, song, you know, but then I, I got one verse, and I don't remember which one it was. I think it was about candy. Um, started rhyming. I'm like, oh, I can make you know this be this whole verse and this whole chorus be about candy. Well, I've got to do that with the other ones. And so that was the longest one to get through, and it also feels like the most airtight one. I don't know. I'm I'm most proud of that 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 song on the record, just because um, it took so long to get that one to work. <laughs> that, that was the most amount of time spent. Um, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of that one. writing socks also i remember writing that i was in the van um in europe writing that one i think and um just the idea of like getting socks for christmas was was sort of the main idea but um i was kind of making myself laugh a little bit while that was happening um i don't know it was just it was like i made a list of ideas of you know, themes that I could try to come up with that maybe hadn't been touched on yet or that much. And uh, they were able to come come as they did. Do you write differently when you're around the band or the band is close enough and sort of, or you're on, you're on tour enough that the band is kind of like as in your ear when you're working? Um. I'm so sorry. Could you repeat that question? I had to get into the car and it, the Bluetooth took it over. Sure. Um, do you write differently when you are, when you're near the band or when you've been playing or I mean, sort of the band is more present in your ear than it would be when you're sort of working at home or working in a, in a writing session? 
Um, some of the songs. Um, sometimes I write with band members, and sometimes I'm by myself. Um, on the Sox record, um, lyrically, I had a lot of help from a couple of the guys. Um, and so it just kind of depends on the song, I think. Uh, the idea might start kind of on my own, but uh, if I knew, like, for instance, my drummer is a real big car guy, and so I just sat down with him, and I just told him to start listing off um, things that would help the Santa's Got a Mean Machine song. So we would talk about all the different things you can do to customize a car, and that kind of grew from that. And then... Um, the Hey Skinny Santa song, my saxophone player Doug like had never written a song before and showed up with like eight verses of like, <laughs> stuff of like how to get Santa to, what to eat. And so it was like, okay, well, this is really incredible. You know, this is this is really, really uh, ambitious, but we can't have an eight-minute uh, rock and roll song about Santa getting fat. So let's figure out how to pare this down. So we've eventually figured out, well, like, let's keep the town's music towns, um, you know, and then it was like, well, that's still like, that could be LA, New York. So let's make it blues, blues towns. So New Orleans, uh, Chicago and Memphis made the cut. So that was kind of that. So in that case, it's like, I had a lot of material to work with, but it needed to be edited down a little bit. So, um, that was really fun. He was really excited to to see a song kind of come to life. Thanks to J.D. McPherson, whose socks is well worthwhile. When we finished talking, I recommended that he check out Charlie Rich's Santa Claus's Daughter, which I thought he'd like. Rich is best known for a couple of late career hits, Behind Closed Doors and The Most Beautiful Girl from 1973. But his career covered a lot of ground, and little of it landed so easily in the uh, pop charts. He started at Sun Records, where he showed a facility for country and R&B, both a jazz pianist Chops. That got him a lot of session work at Sun, but really only one hit, Lonely Weekends from 1960. Rich went to Smash Records in 1965, where he focused more on rockabilly and country, and cut one of his more memorable songs, Mohair Sam. Rich's songs on Smash sound like he's working hard to chase chart success as he nodded to the success of Go-Go's with Tears of Go-Go, and he went fishing for a novelty hit with She's a Yum Yum. 
It's a tribute to Rich's pop sense and his spirited performances that these songs sound like fun and not desperate. And during this time, he wrote and recorded Santa Claus's Daughter. It's a novelty song, too, in the way that all Christmas songs are, since it's designed to exploit the specific market conditions that exist during the holiday season. Like much of Rich's work on Smash, it's fun and playfully flirty as he confesses that he's thinking, things I shouldn't oughta, then rhymes that with the title, Santa Claus's Daughter. Still, it's a sign of how completely Rich's music fell through the cracks that the song wasn't even released at the time. It didn't escape the vaults until CD compilations of his year or so at Smash were released in the 1990s. And like many of the sides he cut in 1965 and 1966, it's hard now to hear why they didn't find a home. For me, this is a Christmas classic, and it's a rarity in the Christmas canon, where few songs are aimed at teenagers or young adults. This is Charlie Rich and Santa Claus's Daughter. sad that he didn't even cut a b-side because i want more thanks to jd mcpherson for the time and the talk you can find him on facebook where you can also find me at 12 songs stop by and let me know what you think have a favorite christmas song that you think could use a little attention tell me about it i love turning people on to christmas songs if you're listening to today's episode on the 12 songs homepage, i hope you'll find the show at apple google play stitcher or spotify and subscribe while you're there, leave a review. Both of these things help other people find out about 12 songs. Thanks as usual to AF the Naysayer for the theme music and to you for listening. We'll finish today with one more from J.D. McPherson's Socks. This is Santa's Got a Mean Machine. Talk to you next week. Jeez.